Good morning. Pray with me, if you will. Loving Father, we thank you this morning for the magnitude of your grace toward us. We thank you for your astounding and amazing plan of redemption that you've been laying out for us in these first 11 chapters of Romans. We pray that this morning you would make us attentive. There's a lot to talk about, a lot to see here. We pray that you would help us to see uh, with spiritual eyes so that we may truly understand your grace better and we may exalt the name of our Savior and Master Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I, uh, I chose... John, I think what I goofed is uh, on the alternate screen in PowerPoint. I did not put it uh, to that projector, if you'd change that for me. I chose to address this whole chapter, chapter 11, as a unit. Uh, If I spend no more than five minutes on each verse, we'll be done in three hours. (laughs) Now, seriously, I I promise not to talk about every single verse. This chapter is the culmination of everything that Paul has been saying uh, throughout the first big piece of this of this epistle, which is chapters one through eleven. Everything that he has said about God's redemptive plan for both Jews and Gentiles comes to uh, its culmination right here in this chapter. Now, there are some passages in Scripture that are um, very exhortational, very practical. They're filled with principles to be applied. This is not one of those chapters. This chapter is very theological. Um, However, contrary to, I think, popular thinking these days, theology is not actually a four-letter word. It's an eight-letter word. And the things that are presented in this passage are of foundational importance. Uh, Some of the things that Paul presents here overturn worldviews. They go to 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 the level of what God is doing with entire nations of people. And they tell us a whole lot about God's amazing purposes in his plan of redemption. Thanks, John. Uh, In in the words of my dear friend Greg Watson, there is great value in being rightly persuaded of what God says is true. Uh, And that certainly applies here. Now, there is one critical exhortation that we're going to see in this passage, and it is a stern warning to Gentile believers that is exceedingly relevant still today. But apart from the startling truth claims that Paul makes in this passage even that exhortation would have no teeth. So we're going to focus a lot on the theology of the passage. Now, even though I did not read the whole passage, we'll see most of the verses in the passage, and we're going to kind of look at them in batches, not one at a time. Here's where we're going this morning. First, we'll see in verses 1 through 16 that Paul presents a case for his assertion that God has not rejected Israel. And he gives us three exhibits, three pieces of evidence. First, himself, in verse 1. Then in verses 2 through 10, he presents 
the existence of a believing remnant in every generation, a believing remnant in Israel in every generation. And he tells us what God is doing with the rest of those who are not part of that remnant. Then finally, the third piece of evidence in verses 11 through 16 is about redeemed Gentiles and jealous Israelites. And in that section, Paul actually tells us the mechanism by which God is working to bring about the salvation, the national salvation of Israel. In verses 17 to 24, we find the exhortation, and that is that there is no place for conceit or complacency on the part of the Gentiles with regard to the Jews. And then in verses 25 to 32, Paul really brings this whole thing to a head, and he talks about the fullness of time when all Israel will be saved. And then finally, he concludes in the last four verses with a marvelous declaration about God's unsearchable judgments and unfathomable ways. First, Paul says in verse 1 that the first three words are, I say then. And what he does with those words is he ties this passage back to what he just said at the end of chapter 10. He concluded chapter 10 by saying that God had not hidden the good news about Jesus Christ from his people Israel. In fact, he said that they had heard that that good news preached. And he quoted God's own declaration from Isaiah 65 in which God said that he has stretched out his hands all day long to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now, having ended that chapter as he did, Paul knew that some people might therefore conclude that God is done with Israel, that he has rejected Israel utterly. And so he poses that question in verse 1. He says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And then he answers it as he's answered so many other questions in this epistle. May it never be the strongest negative that he can use. He then presents himself as the first piece of evidence to support the claim that God has not rejected his people. He said, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, if anybody fit the category of a disobedient, obstinate, hardened Israelite, it was Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a man who was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And that made him guilty of all the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He was a man who was bent on the persecution of the church of Jesus Christ. He was self-righteous and he was cold to the grace of God. But as Saul was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus one day to find some more Christians to arrest and drag back to Jerusalem, the resurrected Christ appeared to him and he called him to be his ambassador to the Gentiles. He saved him. And he changed him completely and forever. And so Paul points to himself as the first piece of compelling evidence that God is not finished with Israel yet. Then he goes to the second piece of evidence, exhibit B, and that is... Thanks. That is uh, the remnant that God has created.
created in each generation of his people. And he presents this idea of the remnant in two pieces. First, he goes back in history and he looks at what God did in Elijah's day. Uh, he says, first, he makes the explicit declaration, God has not, in fact, rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, as we saw back in Romans 8, verse 29, when God uses, when, when Paul uses this idea of foreknowledge, he talks about God's foreknowledge, he's not talking about God looking forward through time and seeing what some person or persons are going to do and then responding and basing his action on that knowledge. When he speaks of God's foreknowledge, he's talking about God's preordination, God's predetermination of that person or person's destiny. God's foreknowledge is not reversible. So when God says, when Paul says God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, he's talking about God's predetermination to create a people for his own possession from the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as his second proof that God has not rejected Israel, he looks back in history to a conversation between God and the prophet Elijah that's found in 1 Kings 19. Elijah, who was being pursued by Jezebel, lamented, and he said to God, I alone am left. I'm the only one around that's not worshiping Baal, the false god. But God responded to him by saying, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now that wording, I have kept for myself, is emphatic. Paul is saying it is entirely by God's doing that there was a remnant in Elijah's day. And his reference to this remnant in the time of Elijah is not meant to be taken as unusual. It's an example that he presents to demonstrate the fact that God has created and preserved a remnant in every generation of the history of his people Israel. He then goes from history to the present, to his present. And he explains that just as God created a remnant in Elijah's day, so also he has created a remnant at the present time. And once again, he makes it clear that that remnant, that remnant exists only by God's doing. He says there has come to be a remnant at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Now, several translations render that according to the election of grace. That's actually a more literal translation of the Greek. According to the election of grace. It is by God's sovereign choosing, by His election that a believing remnant exists among the Israelites in every generation. And then in the next verse, he, he camps out for a moment on that idea of God's gracious choice. He says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. He's not talking about here, uh, here just about works of the law of Moses. He's excluding works of any kind. And he did that decisively back in chapter 4. You remember in chapter 4, verse 5, he said, Now to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. 
Paul really can't be any clearer than he's being here. Our redemption cannot be seen as some combination of faith and as based on some combination of faith and works. It is entirely the gracious gift of God. And any attempt to involve works in the mix negates grace. He says, if any man's salvation is on the basis of works, then grace is no longer grace. Any attempt that we make to qualify the freeness of Christ's gift takes away from the magnitude of that gift, and it in fact diminishes Christ himself. All right, so in every age, God has created and preserved a remnant of Jewish believers by his gracious choosing. And so Paul argues God clearly has not utterly rejected Israel. But what about the rest? What of those Israelites who have not come to faith, who are not part of the remnant? Well, in verses 7 to 10, Paul says, those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Now, the it that he's talking about, he already explained, he already defined back in chapter 9 toward the end when he said that the Jews pursuing righteousness, a law of righteousness, did not obtain that, that righteousness, but the Gentiles obtained it. He's talking about the, a righteous standing in the eyes of God. And he says, those who were chosen obtained it, the rest were hardened. And he goes on then to describe that hardening. And he quotes from a couple of Old Testament passages, Deuteronomy 29 and Psalm 69. I'm not going to read those verses, but he's essentially going back to the Old Testament to do what he's done many, many times before, to show that his claims here are not new. They're already established. God has made these claims before. Now, some would like to, to, to look at these verses and see that the Israelites themselves initiated this hardening that Paul is talking about, that they were hardened because of their unbelief. But that's not how Paul presents it. He's doing the same thing here that he did back in chapter 9 when he said, God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Now the word hardened is different here, but the idea is very much the same. Thomas Schreiner, uh, in his commentary, his great commentary on this epistle, says, the text does not indicate that they, were, they, the Jews, were hardened because of unbelief, but instead that the hardening produced unbelief. Throughout history, most of the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fall into that category that Paul calls the rest not the remnant. Throughout the Old Testament, when God speaks of Israel nationally or corporately, he speaks of them as a stubborn, obstinate, idolatrous, unbelieving, rebellious people. Any honest examination of God's indictments of Israel throughout the Old Testament requires that understanding. And so, even though there is a small believing remnant by, by God's doing in every generation of Israelites, most by far of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are hardened against God and have been so from the very beginning. 
Now, because Paul contrasts in verse 7 those who were chosen with those who were hardened, it would be easy to conclude that the hardening of which Paul speaks is irreversible. See, I believe that the choosing is irreversible. And I believe Paul established that very well. I used to think that when Paul referred in this passage to the rest who were hardened, that he was talking about the non-elect and he was talking about something that could never change. So when he spoke of hardening at the individual level, that was, that was an irreversible thing. But as I looked at every single occurrence of the word hardened in both testaments, I came across 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. And Paul is speaking here of the great hope that we as believers have as those to whom God has assigned the ministry of righteousness which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not as Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. And then look at verse 14. But there, and he means Israel's, minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. So their minds are hardened and there's a veil over their heart. But then he says in verse 16, but whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The hardening is taken away. So some who were chosen of God from eternity past are presently hardened against God. And that, I believe, turns out to be very important to Paul's argument in this chapter because he's going to speak later of a day that is coming when a great many Jews who have been hardened will be saved. All right, so in the first couple of verses of Romans 11, Paul forcefully said that God has not rejected his people, Israel, whom he foreknew, and he presented two pieces of evidence, himself and God's preservation of a remnant in every generation. Now, in verses 11 to 16, he presents the third piece of evidence, that God has not utterly or permanently rejected Israel. And that last piece of evidence is the very mechanism by which God has designed to save His people Israel. He begins verse 11 with another strategic question, and he answers it as he has so many others. He says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. And immediately after declaring that Israel as a nation did not stumble so as to fall, he says, but by their transgression salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, Israel, jealous. Now this is not the first time God said he would make Israel jealous and angry through pagan people. You can go all the way back to Deuteronomy 32, and God said, They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. And he's talking about Israel. And he says, so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with the foolish nation. Now, interestingly, Paul already quoted that passage 
back in chapter 9 of Romans when he was talking about the fact that Israel had already had the gospel proclaimed to them and had rejected it. So Paul makes the point that this idea is already established that uh, God was going to make Israel jealous through Gentiles. But Paul goes a step further than Moses did, and he says something that ends up being very surprising to many in his audience. He pulls back the curtain here on God's divine strategy to bring about the national redemption of Israel. And that strategy is that God has temporarily rejected Israel and brought salvation to many Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous so that at the right time, he will, through that very jealousy, bring about the salvation of Israel at the national level. Now, God indeed saved Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy and anger, but his purpose was not to get even with Israel. His purpose was to save Israel. God hardened Israel to save Gentiles, and he saved Gentiles in order to save Israelites. All right, Romans 11, verses 11 to 15. I want to read this little section. Paul says, uh, we, we read verse 11. Let's start at verse 12. Now, if their transgression, that's Israel's transgression, be riches for the world, and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And he says, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. So right now, Paul's zeroing in on the Gentile believers in his audience. And he says, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? See, the persistent transgression of Israel and the temporary setting aside of Israel by God has brought about riches and reconciliation for the Gentile nations. And as we've seen before, God called Israel way back in Exodus 19 to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He called them to bring the knowledge of the one true God to the rest of the world. But as my brother Philip no doubt laid out for you last week, having heard, had a chance to listen to the audio, Israel as a nation was like Jonah the prophet. They didn't want Gentile nations to know God. They arrogantly treated the law, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the covenants as their own special possession. And they believed that the very possession of those things made them holy, set apart to God. That's not how it worked. And so Israel never fulfilled their priestly mission because they never accepted their priestly mission. But amazingly, Paul declares here that not only in spite of Israel's arrogance, but because of Israel's arrogance, the riches of the knowledge of God have been extended to all the nations. <laughs> Israel fulfilled their priestly mission unwillingly. 
We see a micro view of this in Acts chapter 13. After Paul and Barnabas preached about Jesus in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, a number of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles began following Paul and Barnabas. And at the next Sabbath, there was a huge crowd that gathered at the synagogue. And when the Jewish leaders saw this huge crowd of mostly Gentiles, they freaked out. They were filled with jealousy. And they began vigorously contradicting the things that Paul was saying. And Acts 13 says that they were blaspheming. And in verse 46, it says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you, to you Jews, first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And he says, For thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. A commission originally given to Israel. Then verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. What happened there in Pisidian Antioch was typical of what happened in every city to which Paul went and, and in which he declared the gospel. And that was, he went to the synagogues first. The Jews, by and large, rejected his message. And the Gentiles, in great numbers, came to faith. But in Romans 11, Paul is clearly declaring that the national rejection by Israel of God, of of Christ, and the salvation of many Gentiles is not the end of the story for Israel. In fact, he's saying... (laughs) He's saying that the salvation of the Gentiles is the mechanism by which God will bring about the national salvation of Israel. That's the the amazing thing in this passage. That's the mystery in this passage that is revealed. I'm just going to put this up again. This is verses 11 through 15. If you look at those highlighted parts, how much more will their fulfillment be? Paul says, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some. And he says, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? It's very clear he's looking forward to something that's going to happen that's going to be dramatic in its impact on Israel. God set aside Israel and saved Gentiles in order to bring about the salvation of Israelites. And then he makes this statement in verse 16. He says, if the first piece of dough be holy... The lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. (laughs) You think about the origins of the nation of Israel. God plucked this guy Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of a pagan, dark place where he knew nothing of God. He proclaimed his amazing covenant promises to Abraham and then he proved over and over and over again his intention to keep those promises even when Abraham was struggling for faith. God brought Abraham to faith and then he declared that faith to be righteousness. He took that which was unholy and he made it holy. 
And it is his intention to bring the righteousness of faith, Abraham's faith, not merely to the first piece of dough, but to the entire lump, not to the root only, but to all the branches. In verses 17 to 24, Paul picks up on this analogy of the olive tree and its branches that he just introduced in verse 16. And he refers to the Gentile believers as wild branches that have been grafted into the rich root of the olive tree. And of course, that rich root is Israel. And the natural branches are Israelites. Verses 17 and 18, he says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, being wild, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. It's not, the, it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Paul is saying that if it were not for God's redemptive purposes toward Israel, there would be no redeemed Gentiles. And then in verse 19, he presents a quote that represents the mindset of some of the believing Gentiles in his audience. He says, you, you Gentiles will say then, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. They're broken off and now I'm the real branch. He's pointing out an attitude of conceit and complacency on the part of some of the Gentile believers. It's as if they were saying, you Jews, you think you're all that, now look at you. You've been cut off and we Gentiles have been grafted in. You're just discarded branches and now we're the heirs of the covenant. Now, throughout the history of Christendom, that attitude has found its way into the church. The nominal church, and at times, I think, the the true church. You go back in history, you look at the Crusades. Some of the worst persecution that occurred, some of the worst oppression and abuse that occurred during the Crusades was directed by Christians against Jews, not against Muslims. You look at so-called Christianized Europe and you see a long history of anti-Semitism, often violent anti-Semitism. I believe even today in the church there is a mindset that is condescending on the part of some toward Jews. I even personally think that the whole approach known as replacement theology undermines the position of the Jews in God's plan of redemption. The church has not replaced Israel. And God is not finished with Israel yet. If you go back to Jeremiah 31, God through Jeremiah told us what it would take for him to be done with Israel. And he says you would have to undo the fixed order of the stars and the sun and the moon. You would have to undo God's order of creation in order for him to be done with Israel. He's not done with Israel. We as Gentile believers 
or to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, I go a little off script here and say I absolutely do not believe that that means, as some Christians take it to mean, that we're supposed to support everything that the Israeli government does. I believe it means we're supposed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I believe it means we're supposed to recognize that God's redemptive plan depends on what he is doing with Israel. And if we think that it doesn't, we're misrepresenting massive portions of Scripture in both Testaments. We are called not to be conceited, complacent, or condescending toward Israel. We are called to be grateful to God for what he is doing through Israel and has always done through Israel. Now, in this passage, um, in verses 19 to 24, it talks about branches being broken off and others being grafted in. And uh, there's some pretty strong language here. It says in verse 22, Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, some people have wrangled a lot over the, the wording here, and they've, they've tried pretty hard to figure out exactly what kind of judgment Paul is talking about that might occur to Gentile believers um, that would cause them to be cut off. Well, as with all analogies and metaphors in Scripture, I think it's important to look carefully at the wording, but it's also important to keep your eyes on the point of the analogy. Paul's central and very forceful point in this analogy about the root, the trees, and the branches is that the natural branches are the Israelites and that Gentile believers stand in the tree as true branches only by their faith and only through God's kindness. Thus, Gentile believers have no cause for arrogance toward the Jews. Just in case the Gentiles decided that they had cause to boast about their faith, I think that's why Paul talks about continuing in God's kindness. The kindness of God uh, can hardly be taken as something that comes from man's initiative, right? (laughs) What Paul is saying is, you Gentiles, never, never forget that it is only by God's grace that you stand. Now, I can confidently say that while the warnings Paul presents in these verses are forceful, they are not intended to mean that we as Gentile believers in Christ might at some point cease to be the objects of God's grace. That we might lose our salvation. And the reason I'm convinced that we cannot lose what God has given to us in Christ is because he says we can't. (laughs) In Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, Paul declares that both our faith and God's eternal kindness toward us, that he'll spend the rest of eternity pouring out on us, are gifts that belong to us by God's doing and not by ours. 
1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, Peter says, It is by God's mercy alone that we have been born again to a living hope. And then he says we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So if, as Paul says later in this chapter, the gifts and the calling of God are are irrevocable for Israel as a nation, they are certainly irrevocable for for all of us whom God has pulled out of the domain of darkness and planted in the kingdom of his beloved son. So Paul says, do not be conceited but fear. We stand only by the unmerited grace of God. There is no cause for boasting. In verses 25 to, 20, uh, 25 to 32, Paul moves to his discussion about the fullness of time. And this is where the passage gets really amazing. I'm going to read verses 25 to 27. He says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. And a mystery in the New Testament is something that was formerly veiled or hidden and is now revealed. It's not something that's still hidden. I do not want you to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and thus all Israel will be saved. And then he quotes Old Testament, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In this passage, Paul carries God's plan of redemption for Israel to its end point. And he says some things that are no doubt very surprising to both Jews and Gentiles in his audience. The national hardening of Israel that has continued to this present day is a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And when that fullness occurs, when that time comes, all Israel will be saved. Now that clearly does not mean that every physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who has ever lived in any age, including those who died in unbelief, will somehow come to faith. Hebrews 9.27 makes it very clear. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. There's no second chance after death. Paul is talking here about the generation of Israelites who will live at the time when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Now in verse 12, he referred to the fulfillment of Israel, and here he refers to the fullness of the Gentiles. I believe in both cases, cases he's talking about completeness of number. He's saying that the fulfillment or fullness is the salvation of every elect Gentile and every elect Jew. Now, let's look at that for a minute. No one would claim that the fullness of the Gentiles refers to some future date at which every living Gentile is going to be saved, right? The end-time prophecies that we see in both Testaments don't allow for that. If you look in Revelation 19 and 20, there will be a great many people who are going to oppose Jesus Christ to the bitter end. In fact, even after Satan has been bound in the abyss for a thousand years and he comes back out, he's not going to have any trouble finding people to ally with him to come up against Messiah. That'll be a very short battle, by the way. 
There will be lots and lots of unbelievers from that last battle who will be among the multitude, the vast multitude standing before the great white throne. And they will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone forever. And because the fullness of the Gentiles cannot possibly refer to the salvation of every Gentile alive when that fullness comes around, it seems quite reasonable to conclude that the fullness, the fulfillment of Israel also does not refer to the salvation of every Jew who is still alive when that day comes around. And so many people believe that Paul is simply saying that the day is going to come when all at once every last remaining elect Jew will get saved. And so there will be a bunch of them saved at once. Now, I believe that's a very fair assessment of what Paul's saying here, and I, and I respect those who hold that view. But I believe Paul is going much further than that with what he's saying about the national salvation of Israel. To say that all the elect will be saved is pretty much a no-brainer, right, if you understand the whole doctrine of election. And it couldn't be classified as a mystery that Paul is just now revealing. No, Paul's talking about a revival in Israel on a far grander scale than I think many people have even conceived. It's clear that in every age before this time of fulfillment that Paul's talking about, the remnant of believers in Israel has been a a minority, probably a tiny minority of the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But when the day comes about of which Paul is speaking here, There's going to be a national revival that will transform Israel from a rebellious people to a redeemed and righteous people. Douglas Moo puts it this way. He says the phrase all Israel in verse 26 is similar then to what we, the way we sometimes speak to denote a large and representative number from a group. That is the whole school turned out to see the football game or the whole nation was outraged at the incident. It doesn't mean every single one. It means so many that it qualifies as the whole. In other words, all Israel means such a large number of Israelites will be saved in that day that it will be considered a national salvation. Now again, I believe that's a very reasonable and defensible understanding of the phrase all Israel. But I don't think it goes far enough. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 40 and 41, God declares, for on my holy mountain, on the high mountain of Israel, declares Yahweh Elohim, there the whole house of Israel, all of them, will serve me in the land. That's redundant and emphatic. The whole house of Israel. All of them. It is as if God intends to eliminate any qualification of the word all. In other words, he means all. I believe it may well be the case that when that glorious day comes and all Israel is saved, that every living Israelite standing in that day will be saved. Whether you take this clause, thus all Israel will be saved, refer to every living Israelite in that day or only to a very large portion of them, (laughs) it's clear that Paul's talking about a wholesale revival a national redemption on a huge scale. Now, is the claim of a national redemption for Israel new with Paul? Of course not. As soon as he utters that declaration, he goes on to uh, quote from the Old Testament, 
from Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27, just to, again, make the point that this isn't new information, essentially. This is the new, the, the new covenant promise. We've seen it many times before when we studied the, the covenants. God's going to take Israel with their broken, messed up heart, and he's going to take their heart of flesh, and he's going to give them a heart of, a heart of stone, and he's going to give them a heart of flesh. He's going to take those who had rejected him, and he's going to make them their people, and he's going to be their God, and he's going to cleanse them from their iniquity, and they will dwell in his presence, and he will rule over them forever. In the last four verses of this amazing chapter, Paul concludes with a statement that serves as a vitally important reminder to any of us who think that we can fully get our hands around our God. (laughs) It's entirely fitting as a conclusion to chapters 9 through 11 that has had so much to say about things that we find difficult to understand. And it's an entirely fitting conclusion to every word that Paul has spoken since he started this epistle. And I'm just going to read this and I'm going to treat this as our closing prayer this morning. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever.